Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, there's a few more things that I want to pull out from this section that we looked at last week before we move on to the next verses, which we won't do till next week in our study. We ended last study with looking at the importance of reading and knowing all of God's Word since it is our only offensive weapon against Satan and it was sufficient for Jesus in his temptations. But what I realized is I kind of went back and started looking at, okay, are we good? Are we done with what we covered last week before we move on? I just sensed like God was saying to me, there's still more here. And so I reread this passage and studied it again, fresh and anew. And what God showed me, I can't wait to show you, we're going to go and spend tonight looking at the three places that Jesus quoted from, and we're going to find that there's a depth to what he was showing us more than just it's written. Yes, Jesus used the word of God to defeat Satan, and we know that. We've been taught that for years. But have you ever gone and taken the time to really dig into the places where Jesus was quoting from and the context around them and what, what Jesus was really saying? What began to be an eye-opener for me was... A lot of the things that Satan was trying to get Jesus to do, the church today is doing. And so be ready for where we're going to go tonight. Let's take a look at that first one in Matthew chapter 4, verse um, 4. Jesus answered and says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By the way, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Satan had come to Jesus after he'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Jesus is hungry, the scripture said, and Satan comes to him and says, hey, if you really are the Son of God, go ahead and command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus' response to him is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So we got to go back to the place where Jesus was quoting from. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. If you don't know what's going on, this is when God has led them in the wilderness for 40 years. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they're about to go into the promised land. God's speaking through Moses to the people right before they go in. Of course, he's not able to go in, but the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land. And he says, you shall remember, verse 2, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness 
that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, if you remember, as we talked about this the last week a little bit, and I'm going to remind you of it. Some of you might have heard me even teach and preach on this passage. When Jesus led the nation of Israel into the wilderness, you say, wait a minute, I thought God did. Exactly. When Jesus led the nation of Israel into the wilderness, he had three purposes, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8. One was to humble them. He caused them to be reminded of their dependence on him. God did by accident lead them to a place where there was no food and no water. By the way, this will be important later on in our study. How did God lead them when he led them all through the wilderness? How did he lead them? The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Exactly. The, over the temple, the, the tabernacle there, the move, movable temple, was the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And wherever he went, they went. And so he led them the whole time. And he, did, he led them to where there was no food and no water. He did it to remind them of their dependence on him. He did it also, the scripture said, not only to humble them, but to test them, to see what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. And of course, the test wasn't for God to find out how they would do. The test was to show them what he already knew. And he did it for a third reason as well, to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God said, I put you in a situation to remind you of your dependence on me, to show you whether or not you really would trust me and do what I say, and to teach you how to listen to me and follow me. That was what I was doing. Now, I'm going to say something to you tonight over and over and over and over in hopes that it starts to stick. Satan comes to Jesus and he says, hey, if you really are the son of God, I know you're hungry. You don't have to wait until God fixes your situation. You can fix it yourself. By the way, have any of us ever been tempted with that? Over and over and over and over. Jesus says to him, yeah, I am hungry. And yeah, I could turn those stones into bread. But I'm waiting on the Father. And by the way, Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by having his latest need taken care of. That's not living. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's real life. Real life is walking with God and listening to him, relying on him. That's going to be important as we get into our study tonight. So here's what I'm going to say to you over and over, and I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. Real living, real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. I'm going to say it to you again. You want to know what real life is? Real life, first of all, only comes from God. Secondly, real life is spiritual life, not physical life. And real life doesn't worry about this life. Real life lives for the next life. Go with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Start in verse 21. John chapter 5, verse 21. 
Jesus says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Look at what Jesus is saying. He says, real life is given to those who believe in the Son. And they, at that moment, when they put their faith in the Son, passed from death to life. Jump over to chapter 6 and look at verses 25 and following. When they found him on the other side, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day, Jesus goes a little deeper now and says that not only that life comes from the father and life is given to those who believe in the son and they pass from death to life when they do that. They came and they said, hey, what do you when did you get here, Jesus? If you remember the rest of the story, after the feeding of the 5000, Jesus sent his disciples out on the boat by themselves. He goes up on the mountain to pray. The crowd realizes that the disciples went across the lake, but Jesus didn't go with them. So they start running to the other side of the lake. And then, of course, Jesus, as we know, walks on the water in the middle of the night and all that. They get to the other side. They say, hey, Jesus. Hey, when did you when did you get here? How'd you what a surprise? We didn't, we didn't expect to see you here. And he goes, Hey, I, I know I see through your lies. You're here because you got your belly filled on the other side of the lake, and they're hoping I'll do it again. Don't work for food that doesn't give you real life. Work for the food that gives eternal life. In other words, you guys are so focused on right now. You're just worried about the next meal. You totally don't get it. Life, well, the Bible says life does not consist in eating and drinking and things in this life. And they said, well, well, if we're to work for the life that goes to eternal life, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God. Believe in the one that he sent. And then they said, well, what kind of sign are you going to do so that we'll believe in you? Oh, by the way, if you're curious, if you don't have a little trouble coming up with one, Jesus, Moses gave them bread in the wilderness. 
And Jesus said, Moses didn't give him that bread. My father sent that bread. And I am that bread. Whoever believes in me will not perish. And I'll never lose any that the Father gives me. By the way, hopefully that settles the whole once saved, always saved issue for you. If you've truly been born again and sealed by the Spirit of God, I could show you hundreds of scriptures that show you the Bible teaches that if you're truly saved, you can't lose that salvation. But the greatest proof is the fact that Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father gave me. I think if Jesus says he's not going to drop anybody, you're good. All the other scriptures don't even have to work. That one solves it, doesn't it? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 33. Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Before I go any further, it just hit me. I've been blessed by God to live on the beach, but in a re for reasons that you might not realize. We live over on the beach side in Indian Harbor Beach and have since 2000. And I've come to realize when you live on the beach, you can't get attached to things. I remember buying my kids their first basketball goal. I was so excited to go to Walmart and buy them a basketball goal when they were little. And we set it up in our driveway. In a year and a half, it had already fallen over because of rust. So I bought another one, a more expensive one. I mean, I, mean, I bought a cheap one the first one. I'll admit it. They were little. They didn't need an expensive one. Then I bought a nicer one. In a year and a half, it had rusted over. Oh, by the way, if you live on the beach side and our air conditioner is on the east facing the ocean, uh, we're replacing that thing a lot more than most people do. And I drive a, a Chevy Blazer and the doors are about to fall off. You know, when I read about don't store up treasure that the rust is going to take care of, that means a whole lot more now since I've been living on the beach. The, jump down to verse uh, 25. Jesus says, let me tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and says, hey, you got a problem, and you're hungry, and you could do something about it. And he says, actually, in me trying to solve it, would be showing that I don't trust my Father. Didn't Jesus say your heavenly Father already knows what you need before you ask Him? My Father knows that I'm hungry. My Father knows that I could use some food. And I only do what my Father tells me to do. You're wanting me to take things into my own hands. I'm not going there. Because that would be to focus on this life. And not the greater purpose in what real life is. You see, real life is from God. Real life 
is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 13 through 34. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Folks, we need to be reminded of this. Real life. Is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. But what's happened to us over the years is we've fallen prey to Satan's lies. And we've gotten more focused on what's happening now than the greater plan, the bigger picture. Go back to John chapter 6. Look at verses 47 through 69. John chapter 6, verse 47. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they said to, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father, living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he'll also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on that bread will live forever. Jesus said, so feeds on this bread, sorry, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, Jesus just keeps reiterating this. 
Folks, let me just tell you, real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. Real life lives for the next life. Oh, by the way, does God care about this life? Does God know that we have needs of clothing and food and water? Does God know these things? Of course he does. But what does he tell us as we already read in Matthew chapter 6? Seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll take care of the food and the clothing. And that's one of the things that our family's been learning over and over. I unfortunately was raised by parents that thought they had to help God. Well, it doesn't look like God's going to come through for us this month. So maybe we need to use the credit card. And I was raised that way as well. That's how I, when I was a teenager, I lived off the credit cards. I didn't trust that God was going to take care of me. I lived off the credit cards. I thank God for Becky, who's here tonight. When she and I started dating, one night I went to pick her up for our date, and she said to me, I get to pick where we go on our date tonight. And I pretended excited about the idea. Because you know the word date means to deceive. And you want to, you know, you just put on a good face and like, I think that's a great idea. And uh, she said, let's go to JCPenney. I'm like inside dying. think that's the last thing I want to do is go shopping. So we go to JCPenney and we walk into the store and she takes us to the customer service in the back of the store. And she turns to me and she says, um, give me your JCPenney card. And I'm like, what? So I give it to her. She hands it to the lady at customer service and said, how much is on this? The lady swipes it and says, oh, so many thousand, like between $1,000 and $2,000. Becky took out her own checkbook. You have to realize we're not married. We're not even engaged. And she takes her own checkbook and she writes a check for the full amount, pays my credit card off, and then says to the lady, do you have a pair of scissors? The lady says, yes, and she gives them to Becky. And Becky, right in front of me, cuts my card up. Now, i got to be honest with you, I had mixed emotions. First reaction was, wow, I didn't think I'd ever pay that debt off. Because, you know, at that time, you know, I, I only have to pay five bucks a month. That's, that's great. I only write five bucks a month. Of course, the bill kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I was so excited that a debt that I didn't think I'd ever get paid off was paid off. But then I thought, well, what right did she have to cut my card? And she says, let's go. I go, where are we going now? She goes, we're going to Sears. So we went to Sears. We walked into the back of the store. She goes, give me your card. I handed it to her. She swipes it. The lady swipes it and says, so many thousand. Becky emptied her checking account that night, paying off all of my credit cards. And, of course, cutting up all my cards. I said, why? She said, I want to marry you one day. And I don't want to have debt. I want to trust the Lord. Now, I can be honest with you. That'll preach, won't it? Because she paid a debt that I didn't think I'd ever pay. She had the right to do whatever she wanted with my credit cards. She got, but over the years, I've had the privilege of then teaching Becky even more how to live by faith. And she'll tell you. And we have watched God where we don't worry about trying to save a nickel here or save a nickel there. I'm not one of these people that thinks, well, if I drive 10 miles, miles, I can maybe get two cents less on a tank of gas. It's only money. It's just a tool that God uses. And when you don't see money as something to, 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 to gather, but just a tool, that if God says use the tool, use the tool, 
it loses its hold on you. And you ready for this? We've never had more money in our life. Since we've not worried about money, we stop trying to help God and we just do whatever he says to do with it. And as we've been giving it away, it keeps coming in. We, you know, I, we've started to realize that real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. God cares about the now, but he wants us to focus on the next. He'll take care of the now. But what we've done over the years is fall prey to Satan's lie and say, you need to do something about it. And many of us have gotten ourselves into messes because we haven't trusted God and done what he said to do, and we've taken it into our own hands. And I'm just going to ask you nicely, how'd that work out for you? Let's go to the second thing that Jesus dealt with. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Satan, as you know, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, just throw yourself down. I mean, because scripture says, and he quotes from Psalm 91. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And Jesus says in verse 7 of Matthew 4, he said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, some of you may or may not know where he's quoting from. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Well, now we have to go find out about this story about testing him at Massa to be able to understand what we're talking about here. Go with me to Exodus chapter 17. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16, but Deuteronomy 6.16 ties back to Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. Stick with me here because you're about to find out even more that this attack of the enemy, the church has fallen prey to big time. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. In other words, remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Who led them out of the, 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 the uh, wilderness of sin and who told them to camp at Rephidim? God did. That's important. But there was no water for the people to drink. Hang on for a second. God did it again. Led them to a place where there was no water. Why? That's the second reason. The first one was to humble them, remind them of their dependence, to show them their heart and how they respond, and to teach them how to listen. God did it again. He takes them when there's no water to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
So here we see that they tested the Lord in this situation. Again, we got to find out what does it mean then when it says don't test the Lord and he referenced this situation. Now, God led them into that situation where there was no water. He did this again, like I said, to remind them of their dependence, to show them what their hearts were, and also to teach them how to listen. You, hopefully you caught this. Maybe you didn't. Does anybody know what the Bible shows us that the rock represents? It's Jesus. By the way, the Bible's full of symbolism, but only deal with the symbolism that the Bible explains what the symbol is. Don't listen to anybody say, well, I think the rock represents. No, the Bible tells you what the rock represents. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the scripture says they all drank from the same spiritual rock, which is Christ. We know what the water is from Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 37, when he stands there at the feast and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of him will flow rivers of living water. And the scripture then says, by this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him were later to receive. The rock is Christ. The Holy Spirit is salvation or the water is Holy Spirit and salvation. Listen, they were given a wonderful picture. In order for salvation and the Holy Spirit to be flowing freely, the rock had to be struck. And he was struck, wasn't he? He was crucified. Well, by the way, if you know your Bibles, a little bit later on, they come to another situation where they're thirsty again. And God says to Moses, this time, do what with the rock? Speak to the rock. You don't have to strike the rock again. It's already been struck. It's a wonderful picture of the fact that the Bible says after the rock has been struck, he's only been, must be struck once. He's been crucified once for all. And doesn't Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All you need to do to be saved now is just speak to the rock and say, give me that water. Isn't that what the woman at the well said to Jesus? Give me that water, then I may drink of it. Jesus says, I am that water. You come to me. I'll take care of you eternally and now. I want you to be relying on me at all times. That's going to be important later on. Keep that in mind. I want you relying on me at all times. You see, because real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. But they said, is God really with us or not? That's what they say there in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, God can and he does, as we've already said tonight, test us. But we should never test God to see if he'll come through for us or not. In other words, don't put God to the test by doing something on your own and then seeing if God will do a miracle for you or not. Stick with me on what I'm trying to get across here. There are a lot of people today that will say, well, I'm going to trust God and see if he comes through. Be careful. That's putting God to the test. I'm going to show you just a second, three places where the Bible says it's okay to test God. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read that you're not to test God? Yet I can, and I'm going to show you. Well, let's look at them real quick. Let me show you a couple. Go to Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 6 through 12. God says to the nation of Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, we haven't left. 
God says, well, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions? You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Test me and see if I won't open the window of heaven, windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you'll be, excuse me, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God actually says, test me. See if I won't open the windows of heaven. Why don't you bring the whole tithe? You haven't been bringing the whole tithe. I commanded that you were to tithe, and that portion that you were to bring was to be what provided food for the priests. By the way, when you stop giving, it had a little more effect on just me. And then God says this, test me. Wait a minute, didn't God's word say already, Deuteronomy 6.16, don't put the Lord your God to the test? Didn't they get in trouble in Acts 17, sorry, Exodus 17, for putting God to the test? Well, go to 1 Kings chapter 18 before I answer that question. Go to 1 Kings chapter 18, a very familiar passage. Verses 20 through 39. This is the whole story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I love this story. Starting verse 20 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets. He said, sorry, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar and had, that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. I love that. Maybe he's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the, the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain Susias of seed. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill, your, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. 
And they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Stick with me now. We saw in Deuteronomy 6.16 that you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. Yet we also saw in Malachi chapter 3 that God says, Test me. How do you put the two together? This answers it for us, by the way. Here's the answer. You don't get to pick what the test is. You don't determine the test, but there's nothing wrong with testing God if he sets the test. Doesn't Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship, and don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test what God's will is. You see, God has no problem with you putting him to the test if he sets the test. You don't get to set the test. See, Peter didn't step out of the boat until after Jesus said, come. If Peter had said, Lord, I'm going to step out of this boat in faith and you're going to cover me, he would have been putting God to the test. Because he determined the test. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, wait a minute, Jim. You just showed us here in this story that Elijah sets up this test for God. Where Elijah says, you guys make your altar and I'll make one here. And we'll see which, which God comes through. Wasn't Elijah putting God to the test? Uh, no, look closely again at verse uh, 30. My eyes are getting bad here. 38, I think it is. 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah didn't put God to the test. He did, but God set the test. You understand? You know what we do, though, nowadays? Well, I'm going to do this in faith. Oh, you know when you do that and God hasn't said it, you're doing the exact same thing Satan did. You see, Satan quoted from Psalm 91. Go to Psalm 91. If you were to read the whole psalm, you can see very clearly that it's a psalm that deals with God's promises of protection and provision. Personally, I think a lot of it's pointing to what's going to happen to the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, into the millennial kingdom. But look closely at what Psalm 91 says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions and under his wings you'll find refuge. His his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at new day. A thousand will fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will come, won't come near you. And you'll look only, only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. 
Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, you'll tread on the lion and the adder, and the young lion, the serpent, will, you'll trample underfoot. I could, you see, all, it's just promising all this awesome protection. What if I just were to say, well, verse 10 says, no evil will be allowed to befall me and no plague will come near my tent. Therefore, I don't have to see the doctor. I mean, the scripture says. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like this? I'm more than an overcomer through Jesus Christ. I have dominion through Jesus Christ. I have authority through Jesus Christ. Just recently I was uh, preaching up in New Hampshire and it was during one of the daytimes where Becky and I were at this beach there at the lake and it was starting to cloud up and it's starting to thunder. And all these people were at the beach and they didn't want to have to stop swimming. But the storm was coming and this lady stands up and she says, I command the cloud to leave in the name of Jesus. By the way, the cloud kept coming. And God didn't let me use my prophet gift at that time to speak to the lady. But there's a danger in you thinking that you can just, because the scripture says this, I can do this. No, that's you putting God to the test. Has all authority been given to Jesus? Without question, Jesus said so himself in Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Hebrews chapter 2 says everything has been, because of his suffering and death, everything has been subjected to him. Everything's put under his feet. But then the verse goes on and says this, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Jesus has got all authority, but is he exercising that full authority? No. Satan's still allowed to walk around on the earth, isn't he? So if God who has all authority doesn't exercise full authority, who are you and I to think that we can just well, the scripture says. The scripture says that if I have enough faith, I can just say to that mountain, move, and it'll be gone. Therefore, I say, mountain, move, and it has to move. Oh, you're taking the scriptures, and you're doing what Satan did. You're taking a truth, but not the whole truth, and you're using it for your advantage. Um, doesn't the Bible say that if we ask in faith, we'll have the things we ask? Oh, say a little louder, Jim. If we ask according to his will. You see the difference, the subtle difference there? It's important that you understand this. I think the church doesn't understand how much authority that God's given us. I think that there's a lot of things we could be experiencing that God has for us that we don't ask. Yet at the same time, we're not to put the Lord to the test. You don't determine the test. Has God not promised that he'll take care of us and provide for us? Well, does that mean I can step out in front of a bus because God's going to take care of me? No. You see, Satan took a truth from the scripture and he added to it. And he was putting God to the test. Satan, Jesus knew exactly what Satan was doing. He said, you shouldn't put the Lord to the test. When the people in, at Massa, they had been led by God every day with that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. And then they said, 
Let's see if God's with us or not. Did you catch that? The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud is with them 24-7. Let's see if God's with us or not. Let's set a test for God and we'll see if he comes through. When you set the test, you make God dance for you. Don't you test the Lord. Oh, but if he's promised something, trust him. That's why you got to know what his word says. There's a lot of promises that we have available to us and we miss out because we don't believe. But don't you set the, the parameters. Don't you set the test. Actually, there's a time, and you can look at it later on in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, God comes to the king and he says, ask me for a sign. You get to pick it. And the king goes, oh, I would never put God to the test. And God gets angry with him. Gets angry with him. He says, all right, I'm going to show you, I'm going to pick the sign then. Then we have that famous prophecy about the virgin will give birth to a son. But here God comes and says, look, I'm going to let you choose. Oh, God, I would never do that. But God said, so you can't. You see what I'm saying? We need to get to that point now. Well, wait a minute. Let me just back up. Why does God lead us into the wilderness? To remind us of our dependence. To show us where we really are faith-wise, whether we're going to listen to him or not, and to teach us how to listen and to walk with him. He wants us to walk by faith, but you can't walk by faith unless you know what God has said. That's one of the things in our family we've been really focusing on as we make big decisions on whether the girls are going to get an apartment or get a house when they move out of the house, and now that they're done college and all this kind of stuff, or what about this vehicle or that vehicle? There's all these big decisions. College, do I change my major? All these things. What am I going to do for a career? Well, our life, things are happening as our kids are growing up. We're teaching our kids to say, what's God telling you? What's God telling you? Oh, but Daddy, I haven't heard. Then Wait. The temptation is going to be to take it into your own hands and do something about it. Don't do that. He knows what you need. He cares about you. Trust him and you wait. When he speaks, you act and trust what he said. Oh, don't you say, well, I'm going to step out of the boat because God's going to take care of me. No, don't you set the test. Thirdly, go to the last one. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes, as you know, and says, hey, tell you what, um, why don't you just bow down to me? I know you want all authority and all these kingdoms given to you. Uh, why don't you just bow down to me and I'll, I'll give it to you. And he says in verse uh, 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And by the way, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And for the sake of time, um, I, I'm going to keep moving but Jesus comes and says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, hopefully this doesn't need too much explanation, right? That we should only worship God, and we should only serve God. We pretty clear on that? Actually, I don't think we are. I need your help now in this part of the study. I need your help tonight. I need you to be willing to speak up. I need you to tell me what translation you have and what it says. But I'm going to show you tonight that to worship God and to serve God are the exact same thing. I'm going to show you from Scripture that in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word worship and the word serve are interchangeable. They're the exact same thing. But unfortunately, in the church today, we've separated the two. We've made worship singing and, oh, oh God, and serving, doing things for God, working for God. Listen to me. 
worshiping God and serving God scripturally are the same thing. And I'll show it to you scripture, but I need you scripturally. I need your help. Let's all go to Psalm 100 verse two. I'm going to be reading from the English standard version. Psalm 100 verse two. Scripture says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Does anybody else have a translation that doesn't say serve, but says something else? Presence. Huh? No, no, it says, when, when, instead of serve the Lord with gladness. Says yours says worship. What translation do you have? NIV. NIV. By the way, keep this in mind. You're going to find that it's not that their NIV always uses worship. Sometimes the NIV is going to use serve when everybody else, you're going to see it's not the same. But, but yours says worship the Lord with gladness. Mine says serve. Anybody else have a different word than worship or serve? Hopefully not, because then you get a really bad Bible. It's either going to say worship or serve. All right. Go to another one now. Go to Acts chapter 17. Look at verses 24 and 25. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul said to this, this to the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, he says to these wise men, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples built by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. So here it says, God's not served. Wait a minute, didn't we just read, serve the Lord with gladness? But now it says, God's not served by human hands? By the way, does anybody else have a different word than serve? Yours says what? Worship King James. King James says worshipped. New King James. King James says worshipped as well. New King James says worship. NIV? Serve. So it's not like NIV always uses worship. This time NIV chose serve. Oh, you know why some are saying worship or some are saying serve? Because worship and service are the exact same thing. Stick with me because we still don't understand how they can be the same. But we're going to get there in a second. Go to Romans chapter 12. You're in Acts, turn over to Romans. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Passage that many of us can quote. This is where it starts to get really fun. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, my translation, English Standard Version says, spiritual worship. Reasonable service. Spiritual service of worship. That one even puts them both there. Are you starting to get it yet, folks? To worship God and to serve God are the same thing. They're not two different things. We think worshiping God and serving God are two different things. We think worshiping God is glorifying God and telling God how awesome he is. And serving God is doing things for God. No, the Bible says that worshiping God and serving God are the exact same thing. Well, how do you then worship God if he's not worshiped? By human hands. How do you serve God if he's not served by human hands? We don't do the work. He does it through us. That's close. That's a big part of it. The answer is going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 24. And then what Allison just said is going to hopefully become a little bit more clear. Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, 
For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. By the way, um, I don't think any translation has anything else but serve, right? There's nobody that has worship anywhere. It's all serve. And that's fine, because that's going to help us. Because we still don't know what it means to worship God and to serve God, but hopefully we know what it means to serve money. Do you serve money by saying, money, I'll wash your socks? Money, I'll cut the grass for you. Do you serve money by doing things for money in that way? No. How do you serve money? You serve money by worshiping money, by living your life in such a way that you totally trust money to take care of you. If your dependence is on money or everything, remember I told you earlier that would be important at the end? If your dependence on money is such that you steal, you hoard, you work extra hours, but you live your life in such a way that you think money's going to take care of you, you're serving money and you're worshiping money. How do we serve God? We don't serve him by human hands. We don't serve by doing things for God. We serve God and we worship God by totally depending on God to take care of us. He is our provision. We don't trust in money. We trust in him. You know why? Because real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. Real life lives for the next life. And real life totally depends on God for everything. He wants to be everything. He wants to be our life. He is our spiritual life. He wants to be our whole life, even this life. Now, here's your homework assignment. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to give you a little heads up ahead of time. It's going to be fun and hard. You're not going to find very much in what I'm going to ask you to go dig into. But the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. Actually, the book of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering servants sent to serve those whom are going to inherit salvation. I don't want you coming back with, well, I think this. Here's the question. How did the angels minister to Jesus? We're going to deal with that when we come back at the start of the next lesson. But I want you to go do some study. Have some fun. How did the angels minister to Jesus? The angels came and ministered to him. By the way, I got no problem with speculation as long as your speculation involves Scripture. Okay? I don't want anything crazy. Just go dig and take a look. What do angels do? What are angels' roles? How do angels minister to man? You know, the, I'm giving you some help here. The Bible actually says that sometimes we're visited by angels unaware. There's some things for us to dig into, but how did they minister to Jesus? I think that's going to be helpful for us because I believe the Bible shows that they do some of the same things for us. All right, you understand? You got your homework assignment? You're not going to find very much. 
you're going to be tempted to come up with your own philosophy and theory. Don't do it. Just come back with what the scripture says. And when we start next week, that's what we're going to talk about. How did the angels minister to Jesus? And then we'll move on to our next section. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.